there. Hello. Thank you, guys. Hi, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you. <laughs> Are you in the studio, Liz? Yes, yes. It's the most quiet place in the house. <laughs> Or how are you doing in confinement? I'm okay. It's not too bad this time round. I've got COVID. Omicron, probably. I'm in London where I don't know if you've seen the news, but it's just like yeah. the numbers are insane. Yeah, I wouldn't have known I had it if I hadn't been pinged, which right. if you use that word there. but Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was in Greece. I was in Athens two weeks ago for a performance. Right. And I don't know whether I got pinged like from the airport I, I don't know so it could have been from the, the flight or anyway but it just literally you know I was in Athens I was in this dream world of like musicians and it was for this yeah. festival and and I just came back and like literally within five days I was like the world has shrunk like it's just not possible literally it's just like in two seconds yeah all taken away well, it's funny because I in some ways this kind of almost leads a little bit to kind of what, how I was thinking of even kind of introducing this conversation because we had the ensemble Dedalus coming to perform Eliane's piece on Monday. And a week ago, I was not feeling conflicted at all. I was very much in my New York state of mind where we'd all been getting together and feeling joy and effect of human interaction and contact in real time and space. And yeah, then I came back and I was like, I don't know if this is actually the most sensible thing to do. But then one of the musicians called me because one of the larger ensemble tested positive. So we just were like, well, it's not the time to be bringing in seven musicians from all over Europe. Yes. And I was like, I don't. So it kind of brought me back to this format, which is in both, in some ways, it's a total gift that actually in these two years, I can't believe it's been practically two years of different versions and levels of isolation where we've this format of online discussions it's such a nice way to actually be able to connect with people but it does raise those issues which are some that have really come to mind during Eliane's show about this space between the machine the screen and us as humans and it feels really like so much of her work is rooted in that space between those two things. So I, I'm so thankful to you both for taking the time to discuss these ideas. So I will start with introducing you both. Um, and Aura, your work um, is rooted or encompasses film, sound, performance, and sculpture, um, and centers around the tropes of ventriloquism in order to conceptualize a distributed, expanded, and shared notion of voice. Works are made in conversation and use dialogue as both method and subject matter. And you've made a body of work centered on various sound technologies in order to explore notation systems, code and encryption, and ways in which these might resist standardization, generating new soundscapes, and in turn, new forms of listening and attending to the other. You have performed extensively around the world, including many places such as Tate Britain, Baltic, Hayward, uh, MoMA, SF MoMA, and I will post a full bio for everybody's reference. And then Liz, you are on the other side of the Atlantic in New York. You are one half of the minimal electronic music project Zeno and Oaklander, formed in 2004. And your, your, work, your personal work in particular 
explores connections between art, music, and fragrance with an emphasis on synesthesia. So I think in some ways, natural entry point perhaps for a conversation to begin would be around this notion of whether machines breathe and how, if at all, you have thought about that notion within your work and if it's something that is a consistent thought within both of your work. So I don't know, maybe Liz, do you want to... Sure. Yes. The synthesizer is a living, breathing instrument already, you know, because it's got this elemental thing to it. Electricity is like a fire. It creates this breath, this kind of elemental warmth to the signal that comes in. There are some examples of that in in electronic music. Um, First thing that comes to mind is Kraftwerk the a voice of energy the song on radioactivity it's basically like um one of the Kraftwerk members voice going through some sort of like vocoder device and impersonating the voice of energy <laughs> coming through the airwaves Ich bin ein riesiger elektrischer Generator. Ich liefere Ihnen Licht und Kraft und ermögliche es Ihnen Sprache. Musik I guess it's got something to do with the human voice as well. And then we can go to the, the theme of vibration later, but it is closely related to that. Also, like in uh, music history, there's also an example with the work of Wendy Carlos in A Clockwork Orange. I don't know if you remember this, this Chelsea drugstore scene where the characters walk around this sort of mall, like a shopping center. And then you hear the voice of Rachel, who was Wendy Carlos's uh, a partner at the time, I guess, in the music lab, and you hear her sing through the vocoder. It's a machine, but it's a human voice. This is like this human presence. Mm-hmm. I find that interesting relationship to that. And I was curious, Aura, what you thought about that. What did you thought about, like, breath in relation to your work? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, and I've been kind of mulling it over and interested in your um, erudite response, Liz, around historical examples of people working with electronic music and voice and voice modulation. When you first pitched the question, I was thinking more along the lines of machines, not only music machines, but machines in general are extensions of us. They are ergonomically modeled to fit our bodies. The keyboard implies our fingers. You know, the flute implies our mouth and our wind, uh, you know, our lungs. And so they are enmeshed with our body and with our breath already. And I think in a lot of the works I've done, which are either using technologies or about people using technology, I'm interested in how these technologies modulate our, our bodies. I mean, exactly as you said, Liz, you know, the way in which it's still it's still my voice but it does something to my voice where the voice is kind of um, 
I, I don't even think it's just that it's filtered or that it's moderated or kind of um, transformed by the technology because in effect the voice and breath is already in this threshold space you know mm -hmm. when we're breathing we're already participating in atmosphere and the outside we're already intertwined with our environment and so there's a sense in which yeah for me the reason I work with sound what's interesting to me about it is precisely because it allows us to think about something that is porous and borderless and you know not easily contained not easily held in one space and I often give this example you know as I'm speaking now my voice is both here in me in my throat and my body but also on the walls in my room and through the computer microphone and zoom reaching you and kind of telepresencing elsewhere so it's already this thing that's flitting about and that doesn't have a stable body and so what is useful for me about technology is it accentuates that it's, it's already part and parcel of how sound is vibratory and kind of um, yeah something around its materiality and its poetics but the technologies sometimes just help us see that or materialize that in a more tangible form. It's a nice question because it's taken me in all these different directions. This reminds me a little bit of a discussion about the soul and its relation to the body, like how our body is a vessel for a vibrating spirit, if you like. I think it's Jean-Luc Nancy, the French philosopher who sadly passed away. He was describing this as a sort of shaking or in French, it's called tremblement, like some sort of trembling motion that the, the soul has in the body. So when you mention like how the breath is contained within the vessel of technology, Somehow it reminded me of how the soul or the spirit in the human vessel functions and then evaporates at some point. <laughs> I wish I had the quote to hand, but I was reading a book yesterday that's mostly about uh, mushrooms and, and kind of uh, fungal processes. It described the body not as a thing that is alive, but actually as a process that is constantly shifting. And so the constant is that there are processes happening to this body, not the body, if that makes sense. As you were talking, it, it made me think of that idea that it's almost like we're being lived through. When we're, we're being breathed, we're going through this constant state of transformation and metamorphosis and aging <laughs> or growing up, depends what side you're on of <laughs> chronology. But yeah, the constant is actually vibration, change, transformation. Traditionally, we, we as human beings, I mean, traditionally, let's say Western thought, <laughs> we expire once we pass away, we expire. But, however, the way you describe it with mycology, mushrooms and root systems and so on, it's like an eternal process that, where there is no expiration, really, which kind of relates to the technology part that you were talking about. Ob obsolescence perhaps or eternal life <laughs> you were relating to technology and like the technology that we're using is supposed to last forever or preserve everything data forever information but there is obsolescence right 
That's yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. Like, we know that data corrupts. Some things last longer, some things last less. I mean, this is a deeper philosophical question. I don't know <laughs> if this is the direction we want to go. But there is this problem, I think, around music, around how to make it endure, because notation is maybe one way where you can say, OK, there's a script and you reanimate baroque music or music from the pre-recording era by reading it and kind of understanding the code. But there were obviously other forms of music performance and music transmission prior to that that we're not privy to and we think of it as lost. Um, there's a great book by Jonathan Stern called The Audible Past, which is all around this idea of the past of sound prior to recording technology, which totally transformed our understanding of memory, our understanding of temporality, our understanding of transmission into the future and endurance and obsolescence and so forth. Then a small aside, and then maybe we can come back to the subject of notation, but um, I'm working on a project now on, on sirens and emergency signals and kind of warnings. And one of the things that's been really fascinating to me is thinking about, okay, you know, the warning is for this moment, there's a fire and then there's a sound and then you put out the fire. But how do you warn into the deep future, like nuclear waste, which will be dangerous well beyond our imaginable lifetimes. And obviously this is a kind of parallel problem to the golden record where you're like sending a message out into space. But in this case, it's like, how will you send a message out into the deep future? Um, and one of the things that's interesting about that as well is I think um, it was a documentary I was watching on nuclear waste storage is that actually maybe the most effective way of warning or of telling stories or of preserving any information is actually through storytelling. And so, you know, mythology or other forms of storytelling, that actually that so far in, in our culture is the thing that has endured the longest, um, potentially longer than writing, because it will transcend writing because it's a transmission of a kind of archetype of a story or a warning in a story and so forth. Anyways. Well, something that came to mind, um, maybe just the detail here, is a notion of trust that comes from storytelling or the voice telling the story. It's a way for you to, as a, as a listener, to uh, understand or to trust the person who's telling the story, that the story is real or true, that there's veracity or honesty to the story. You can tell that by sensing the person's voice, smelling, uh, you know, whatever chemistry is coming out of the body, the sweat. That's what human connection is all about. And if ultimately a way of protecting oneself by trusting the source of information, you know, how it's related to you. Is this real? Is this true? And trusting that source. So in that respect, just something that came to my mind was like, could we possibly learn how to maybe sense danger like that? So like radioactivity, could we learn how to smell it perhaps and know that it's dangerous? Actually, to be honest, I don't know what radioactivity smells like. <laughs> I've never experienced it. But, you know, uh, uh, we know what a fire smells like, and that's call to action you know extinguish it it's dangerous there's danger there i personally don't 
record anything else but on you know vinyl or uh, tape or like that's my record that's the the trace and that's the story uh i'm not that familiar with annotation and uh so i'm very curious what you what your process is uh in relation to recording um your work i mean i'm i'm not a musician in that way um but i i think a lot about notation and I love this idea of an instructional score or a score that basically, rather than being a kind of stable construct that says, you know, these are the notes and this is how it's played, that is somehow open to interpretation and always alive and shape-shifting. Um, and so a lot of the works I've made in particular around women in electronic music have pursued that thread in their works, you know, from a film I made about Daphne Oram and her notation system um, and other films I've made or projects that I've done that are centered along kind of similar lines. And I, and I, I have read this as a kind of feminist, not necessarily feminine, but a feminist way of understanding writing and kind of instantiating a new form of notation script programming, whatever you want to call it, you know, um, coding to kind of upend this static patriarchal canon, um, even if it's not necessarily explicitly stated as such, but that's the beauty of, that's, that's what I find beautiful about electronic music's promise and potential, specifically in the moment that it was this kind of heyday is, you know, electronic music was um, this doorway for many women to start composing without having to go through the orchestra, without having to go through all of the kind of hierarchies that would have kept them outside of composition. And so, um, you know, Lisa Rovner's film, Sisters with Transistors, talks about this beautifully. And, you know, people like Laurie Spiegel and others have, have been very articulate about this kind of space of possibility that electronic music provided but if you think of the way that um, a lot of the musicians are portrayed, you know, whether it's the portrait of Pauline Oliveros or, you know, they're kind of with this hand on the dial and kind of their ear tilted and they're, and they're listening because what they're hearing is something, well, that's how I imagine it, that they haven't heard before. So it's a kind of exploratory listening. So when we were talking earlier about a form of notation that isn't fully resolved, you know, that is still open, that's the kind of listening that I'm interested in. And with regards to Eliane, what's incredible is, you know, she has this very beautiful, powerful body of work with electronic music. And then over the past 20 years, she has moved towards acoustic instruments and she kind of gives them a score in a very unusual way because it's not just that she plays a piece of music and is like, here you go, this is this is what I'd like it to sound like. She gives them, gifts them almost, an image of water. And that image of water doesn't have to be a photo or a specific image of water, though it can be, but it can be a kind of water, whether it's, you know, a waterfall or a, a kind of, and, and this comes up through conversation and meetings and being together in person. And then that is the score. And so the musician then carries this rippling 
bubbling, flowing image of some kind of pattern and is open to, you know, they're, they're kind of, there's space for them to interpret it as they wish. have on display now in the gallery is um, this wonderful little um, window into Eliane kind of receiving this music back. It's really powerful and, and stunning and you know moving because you see that she's kind of deeply so I mean the way I understand that moment which features also in the film but is here kind of re-edited for exhibition purposes is it's a it's a portrait of listening and a portrait of feedback yeah. and obviously her early Eliane's early works are called feedback works and I really like that notion of like the feedback yeah. space between mm -hmm. the microphone and the speaker um, but there's something going on there um, and maybe that's the listening feedback I was talking about with regards to the hand on the dial as well and I don't know Liz if there's something that resonates in the way that you work with sound and dials and yeah I think recognition is also something like so you listen out for a new sound that you think you've never heard before but then kind of in the back of your head you're like ah I like it because I recognize it maybe you recognize it from the past or somewhere else or you know I imagine that Eliane uh, went through a similar process in her head you know receiving the sounds again and just like oh yes now I recognize this it gives you joy, in a way, because it's familiar yet very foreign. That's uh, and that produces excitement or like a wonder. Or, but yeah, I like to use um, pedals sometimes, reverb and um, spring reverb and these kinds of delay, 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 delay. And you can, if you crank up the dials, you get into like this like feedback loop, and you can pitch the sound up and down and create sort of intergalactic sounds <laughs> and uh yeah the excitement is to see how far you can push it before it becomes ugly and out of control there's a lot of control involved as well that's the thing is to launch launch the electronic sound let the chaos happen but then contain it and shape it into a beautiful thing that you can experience and so that's always that kind of like fine line between not enough and too much <laughs> and so the shaping of the sound wave is also very ergonomic it's like you're doing that with your body as you were describing in the hand on the dial or like it's super physical but you you need to have like the peace of mind to really listen because sometimes what happens in music is that you are so focused and so tense about it that your ears close up <laughs> and you stop listening. But it's always important to stay open and, and listen and react. And is your, so your process is, you, you don't use traditional notation in any way. It's, is it more improvisational? Well, um, with Zeno and Oaklander, we use the, usually like the pop format, the classic song format. 
or the punk music format. constraint you know you just have to follow that formula and there is some freedom in having that structure because you don't really have to think about it so much and then when we've done like looser more ambient works these fall outside of that formula and that's where we really kind of let the unconscious flow you kind of are outside of yourself when you do stuff like that. to reproduce as well. It's like you can do it once. And so to try and do it again is, is pretty difficult. I like that idea of magic. And actually in some ways that leads into something that I found interesting, particularly in your work aura around ventriloquism. And there's, there's something so interesting about that space. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that within your work, because there is on the one hand, the notion of a kind of puppet without strings or anyone guiding that process. But also there's that wonderful moment when you're watching something where you think the sound is coming from and it's actually from somewhere else. And it's, again, it's it's this space between two things, whether it's between the machine and, and the human or between the sound and the recipient. But there's that, that interesting space between. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I just want to preface that my cat is in the background licking itself, herself. <laughs> you hear odd noises, that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> I've had someone yeah. tapping at the door for yeah. the last five minutes, so that tells what that is. Um, yeah, I, I made a piece when I was pregnant 18, nearly 19 years ago, um, called Ventriloqua. And, and I had been thinking a lot about ideas actually through technology of kind of mediated agency or of, I guess, like, it wasn't really around the kind of ghost in the machine, but it was this idea that I was talking earlier about where the body is somehow displaced or projected or expanded or extended through something non-human, inhuman, more than human, inanimate. And I was kind of looking at that initially through technology and, and puppets as well. I was interested in that and, and magic performances and 
I mean, even just thinking of like the traditional magic trick of sawing a person in half and then kind of going through it. So there's something there around like bodies that are passed through. And when I made ventriloquo, I used a theremin and I particularly like that quality of sound of um, you know, a little bit like what you were saying earlier, Liz, to do with a vocoder, this voice that's like somewhere between human, but something other, something perhaps alien or, or horror film or kind of beyond the human. So you feel like, I mean, when you hear the theremin, you, you hear something very familiar, but then it, it takes you somewhere else. And that was the quality I was looking for. And what I was interested in doing with ventriloquo was kind of literally ventriloqua means belly speaking and it was this idea that like I had another voice inside of me literally and that trope has carried through in many of my other works and I do think even of my film portraits or audio weavings where I kind of maybe I'm interviewing someone or in conversation with someone and then I distill it into something. I still think of it in that way as like these voices that are passing through me or that we're kind of entangled in this way. And as I was saying earlier, like ventriloquism is just a more accentuated version of what the voice is doing anyway. I mean, we say project your voice, like that is what the voice is doing. It's projecting outside of me elsewhere and bouncing off the wall so an effective ventriloquist will make it appear as if it's projecting quite far from my body or through a dummy you know which obviously is a whole range of like misdirection but the idea of ventriloquism is very generative i think because it also frees us up from this notion that i have this very self-contained bounded notion of, of myself and so it's like the other side of what I was saying about technology as this extension you know because we in ourselves are not easily contained we spill over you know and like sound does exactly that when you talk of sound spill or sound bleed in a gallery context you know what we're talking about is the fact that you can't keep it contained and a lot of technologies around sound distribution, sound amplification, sound containment are precisely trying to work against this problem that sound has, the inherent problem. So you have noise cancelling headphones or, you know, Liz, you're in a studio, I'm gathering maybe with some soundproofing. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, you have sound broadcast, which is like, it's not spilling or pushing out further enough, you know, far enough. So this is the kind of this is why sound is such a useful tool for me and also why ventriloquism helps me think it through so i do think about it in relation to a more traditional notion of ventriloquism i mean actually just as a small aside the ventriloquist dummy is quite a late introduction to the history of ventriloquism because prior to that it was just this floating voice that came from somewhere else and the dummy was introduced, I can't remember when, but um, there's a great book by Stephen Connor called Dumbstruck, which is a cultural history of ventriloquism, and he talks about it from the, from, I think it's the Delphic Oracles onwards, you know, all these notions of voices being thrown so um, through up to the telephone, which is a way of throwing our voice. So yeah, it's not just this kind of vaudeville notion of ventriloquism that I'm interested in, it's like ventriloquism as a as a metaphor as a method almost yeah this is a sideways move from ventriloquism directly but just something you'd mentioned in relation to weaving i found very interesting 
weaving within the machine and weaving within sound. And it is, you know, one says the word weaving and it has such a female history. And there was a, a short passage that I had sent through, which was something that Lynn Hirschman Leeson had spoken on, which was in relation to um, the history of the computer coming from the history of weaving and in particular from a woman, which was kind of an overwritten history. But I, I wanted to ask both of your thoughts around this notion of weaving the female within the context of the machine. But also the more I thought about it, the more it's so interesting when you think of the motherboard. And there is definitely a very, um, even just semantically, there's a lot that is very female within the history of technology, but that's been something that's been less talked about or prominent, I suppose. Um, but so I, yeah, I guess, Liz, do you have any thoughts in relation to this notion of weaving within sound and technologies and within your own work? Is it something you think about? Maybe not weaving necessarily, but a certain materiality mm -hmm. to sound. So wanting to make sound tangible because sound is, it's in the ether. And so <laughs> to make it an object or to make it a palpable, malleable thing that you can actually touch or smell or taste or see, that's what I'm, uh, I've been interested in and yeah, trying the, to manifest. component, that's such an interesting, that was something that I wanted to come to also was your interest in that sense also in this, the perfume and the smell in relay. It's such an interesting combination alongside sound. We often forget about that sense. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a way for me to just manifest music in a, in other realms, other senses. Uh, also, because as I was saying earlier, it's a, sort of a matter of trust, understanding, is this original? Is this something you can trust? Is this real? <laughs> because uh, with the relationship with the computer, the way that we use it as consumers, is it, it kind of alienated and also always suspicious, you know? Am I being scammed? Oh, this is another, you know, rip off <laughs> a piece of technology that's just going to break. And so this notion of weaving is interesting because, first of all, it implies a lot of time, whereas our relationship to technology is to just speed things up, high velocity production. And uh, yeah, weaving is generational also. It's like usually, you know, for a rug, it takes multiple generations to actually complete it, complete the work, which that in itself is also really interesting. I'd love to hear more about the relationship between the computer and weaving, because that's something I didn't know about. I'll share with you, um, it's part of this, there's a really brilliant interview um, with Lynn Hirschman Lee, and it's, it's a great interview. I'll send it to you afterwards. It's really fascinating. I think um, in the quote that you sent us, she's mentioning the book by Sadie Plant, which yeah. is Zeros and Ones, which is a really good um, account of this triangulation of technology and women and um, Zeros and Ones. I, th I think that's the title, actually. Prior to making films about 
uh, or projects that centered on women in electronic music, I had been looking a lot at the history of punched card. And so if you think of the pianola, which is like a pre-electronic um, synth of sorts, um, it uses the principle of punched card. Um, and so there's this kind of lineage between the jacquard loom, which is an early form of um, coding the, the weave pattern into um, uh, depends on the piece of technology, either a rolled piece of paper or folded cards. And, um, and I think you still get it in sewing machines. Um, and then through mechanical music, so pianolas and other forms of self-playing music, which are kind of like late 1800s, early 1900s, and kind of precisely this moment where other technologies like the gramophone are taking off. And then uh, early computer coding used the same principle and lots of other technologies where you need some kind of code. So when I think of code, I think of it as related to notation and related to, to holding the memory of a pattern. Um, and that, that's really, I think, the kind of fascinating lineage is like if you think of it as a form of writing, which it is, as much as it is a form of notation, a form of code, and the, the principle behind binary code or, you know, this kind of punched card code is that it is read back by the machine rather than in other forms of um, notation or mnemonic devices, mnemonic support systems, that it's for a human to read and interpret. So there's a sense in which some of the reading of the writing is delegated to the machine. And the phonograph is a really good example of this because it's a kind of scribbly, tiny little, you know, phonographic inscriptions that, you know, we can't read. I know there are people that claim to have like vinyl vision and that they can read it just by looking at it. But really all you can see is like low frequencies or high frequencies, some sense of pattern, but you can't like read it. Like you could decipher a piece of notation. So there's a kind of one way scripting or coding or programming that happens and um, yeah and with regards to gender like women are totally woven into this history um, in terms of early technologies you know whether it's the telephone operators or the typists with the typewriter um, or the telegraph or all of these technologies that are again around telepresence or or, or transmitting writing elsewhere or um, Kind of typing or holding that space and the telephone operator was called a speech weaver because they were doing exactly what the synth uh, kind of um, patch looks like you know kind of connecting these different voices and um, there are some wonderful images of, of women telephone operators kind of plugging and unplugging and, and what they're doing is weaving voices together from very distant parts of the world, a little bit like what we're doing now, <laughs> but um, in this much more kind of analog way. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more one could say about this. Um, and, and I think what's interesting is the way women at this moment in time or in the last 10 years or so, I'd say there's like a real revisionism taking place around like women's involvement in seminal pieces of technological development, whether it's computing, but, you know, obviously, as we were saying earlier, you know, Lisa's film brings to light the fact that there were many, many women working in parallel in electronic music, and somehow they weren't, like, written out of it, but they weren't given the space that they deserved. And I'm thankful that the film, you know, is a 
as a corrective of of sorts, you know, and it enables those conversations to happen in a slightly different way, um, which is long overdue. Yeah, it highlights it in a really superb way. And I feel so grateful to have this focused film that she made also of Eliane, which is, it's extraordinary actually spending time with it because every day I take away something different, which is, it's really the magic of that piece because it's both this experience of Eliane's music and her her piece that she's made, which is, which I feel very privileged to be able to experience every day because also she created it for musicians or for live performance, which is why we so wanted to have this performance. And there is that real, there is an immense difference between experiencing something live and real and having something recorded. But what I think so brilliant about what Lisa's managed to do in this film is she's married the visual with the sound in this way where it becomes completely seamless and you're you're very, you're transported and you're really taken on this journey and watching Eliane experience this performance for the first time it's it's just it's incredibly special so I feel very grateful for having had a month of experiencing this and it has really highlighted to me how tangible sound is in so many of you know it, I have it on all all day looping and I've started to feel like I can Liz, when you were talking about the other senses that I was so interested in the power of scent. One doesn't often think of scent and sound in the same framework. It's quite a particular way of thinking about something because they're often quite separated. We think of a very strong smell or a very strong sound and those two experiences are often quite separated. But I'm so interested by the idea that you've combined these. Well, our receptors are pretty close to each other. Like the scent receptors are located right, I think, behind the eyes. And then our ears are right here. It's it's pretty close, you know. You kind of never think about that. <laughs> it's this triangulation. They're going to affect each other. But yeah, on the molecular level, you know, uh, scent molecules move. Mm. They have these rap different kinds of movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how, you know, they're being recognized as well as their shape. A scent molecule has a shape as mm-hmm. well as a movement and a charge. So it's electric, it's movement, it's shape. They, they have shapes. <laughs> um, and um, uh, it's, the shapes and the receptors are not exactly, it's still kind of a bit of a mystery. Like how do we recognize those molecules? And sometimes it's not really that accurate, you know? Virology, viruses work in a very similar way, like the way our body recognizes a virus. Um, There are a lot of like, (laughs) (laughs) there are a lot of like viruses that camouflage themselves as 
something else that's mm. in your body, you know, and then you get inflammation, you know, um, through a false recognition. So there's also, there's also that, you know, again, this notion of trust, like, yeah. is this? Well, there's actually another word that I became so interested in. I was reading a text, this notion of the antibody, which is such a wonderful word in itself. But it does, at the moment, all of these terms are so apt for obvious reasons. There was an interesting text that Lynn had written in relation to the antibody, and it was very much related to the, mach- to the history of machines also. It was very, it was an, it's an interesting piece I'll share with you. I wanted to ask Liz, how, what made you develop a perfume and what does it smell like? And how would you describe that? <laughs> so uh, the first perfume I ever made is called Eau de Zino and it had to do with memory. It's a very <laughs> obvious place to start, but, you know, uh, it's like, what was my first experience of perfume? What's my first memory of perfume? And it was Chanel 5 which is, uh, for the most part, lab-created. They're uh, C11, C12, these aldehyde molecules uh, that were created in the lab. So there's a lot of mythology around that perfume. Like, apparently, it was an accident in the lab. They uh, put too many of those molecules in there, and so it smells the way that it does which it's an aberration or something like that. And therefore it's delicious. <laughs> so um, I recreated it from memory, but also with just my own ingredients, which I could get sort of a little bit DIY, sort of home cooking. Um, so that was my first perfume. And then uh, the most recent one is a experimental scent that was inspired by the first song on my new album. The album's called Video, and uh, the song is called Infinite Sadness. And so I wanted to, it's like sadness is, is an emotion, it's a feeling, and it's uh, in limbo, you know, eternally gray or eternally misty, or it's this sort of neither hell nor heaven, that we human beings experience. And so I wanted to make something tangible and real out of this misty feeling, you know, and make it uh, infinite and yet, you know, ephemeris, something that will evaporate into nothingness in a few hours. So um, I used like, uh, ritualistic scents like frankincense, for instance, benjoin, these like really ancient uh, uh, Egyptian, Greek kind of scents. And I also combined that with like a very modern molecular lab created, you know, scientific experiments. Uh, again, I used the C11, C12 of Chanel 5 and a couple of other Adelheids. And then, um, so that's the, and I used Angelica root, which is a very healing um, plant. I think originally from Norway. So uh, the healing was also important, I think. So that's how I 
turned a song into a scent that will evaporate, <laughs> but captured in a bottle and can be kept forever. Can I ask, I mean, that's so fascinating and, and strange as well. Um, can I ask, coming back to this notion of notation, like, can you recreate these scents? Is there a formula? Is there like a recipe? Yeah. Or is it something that um, is just, when you talked about it evaporating, I was just thinking of it as this thing that's like, it, you know, even perfumes go off at some point. They don't smell the same after a while. Yes, they turn. They have a lifespan. <laughs> it's also interesting that they smell different depending on who they're on, which I always love that, that they're completely dependent yes. on the recipient. And, um, you know, some perfumes spring out of the bottle more than others. You know, some want to stay inside the bottle and not spring out. <laughs> but um, there is a formula. Um, and it's all like weight. You just weigh your molecules. You just, you count. There's a lot of like counting. You count the drops. You weigh the ingredients. It's very like uh, rhythmic in a way. Like you, when you're like dropping um, the uh, oils into the bottle, into the, the jar, you have to count, you know, and keep a tally of what you're putting in there. So there's a definite rhythm to it. You need to be super clear in your mind it's like a performance, you know, if, if you do it in the wrong order and you're getting distracted or whatever, it's a cat catastrophic <laughs> perfume <laughs> and you have to start all over again and restart the performance again. Yeah, it's quite, it's a manic process. It's great. <laughs> so yes, I do, I do have the formulas. I wonder if it could feed back into a piece of music, like as you just described the rhythm of making it and that it's performative. I was thinking, yeah. oh, you could do this kind of feedback loop of like the scent is and the making of, you know, it's like a, what's that artwork, um, a box with the sound of its own making. You could make a perfume with the sound of its own making. <laughs> like using field recordings also is, is, a, is a good idea. Thank you. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That's a great idea. I love that. Well, thank you both. I was gonna I was going to ask about the spiritual, but in some ways that might take us into a whole another hour's worth of a topic. So I almost and I've taken an hour of your time already. Um, so maybe we can revisit on another day in relation to the spiritual, because there is something. So there's definitely within both of your um, practices and rooted, going back to Eliane's, there is a lot to be discussed around the spiritual. Um, but thank you both so much for your time. I so, so appreciate it. And I um, look forward to continuing the conversation in many ways. Um, and I will share this recording and all of the references that I mentioned also, because the, particularly the interview with Lynn is definitely worth reading. Thank you for inviting us, thanks. Thank you so much, it's really been a joy and
And it's actually now every time that I'm going to do it, I'm on a Zoom, I am going to think of the women with the plugging in. It's such, it is such a wonderful and it's a very historicized moment. And I feel like you see it so much in films, particularly, you know, wartime films of the telephone operators plugging in. But it's this, it is that beautiful um, choreography of connecting people across the world. And it is, if you think of this format and Zoom in that way, it's much more enjoyable and valuable. And it's, it's, it's a very, it's a special thing that developed very quickly um, to answer the problem of us all being able to be together. So it is quite, it's quite an extraordinary thing in many ways. Definitely. I'm very grateful, actually, for a lot of Zoom connections that have happened throughout the pandemic at a time when, you know, face to face wasn't possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if anyone's been watching uh, Laurie Anderson's Spending the War Without You, her online lectures, and yeah. just thinking about like that immense privilege of like, hearing her speak, but also kind of somehow um, connected to all these other people that are watching it at the same time. So true. Um, there's just something, something about this moment where technology, of course, it's alienating, of course, it does all kinds of things, you know, we're addicted to scrolling and this kind of state of constant low level stimulation yeah. and numbness. But actually, I think behind um, all of this is also a deep need for connection. And I think we should be really grateful that actually it's, I mean, imagine the pandemic without it. Right. <laughs> and particularly, I have to say, having moved from New York to the southwest corner of France, which is both a joy, but also it's it could be very alienating in, in many ways because it lacks there's there isn't the ease of community that there is in New York. Um, but without without technology, yeah, I think I would have felt immensely alienated and had very little access to to what everyone was doing and, and conversation. And it's it is so valuable. And also like just this in this instance, having the opportunity to talk to Aura, whom are I find totally amazing. The conversation was totally amazing. I've learned so much from it, you know, and it's it's great to keep learning, uh, you. you know. And this this has been this has been great. Thank you. Well, so I, I can't wait to um, smell your perfume. I think smell and taste are the senses that are lagging behind the others in terms of teleportation. Right. Um, right. So let's make a uh, centerphone into the yeah. future. Well, and actually, given, gosh, it is all, one could very easily slip into being a conspiracy theorist, but it is interesting how also with the current virus that scent and taste, it's quite a wild experience when you lose both of those senses. It's, it's really quite um, alarming, and it's something that one doesn't think about often. Yeah, because it's your defense mechanism. It's like what will yeah. see you. So, yeah. <laughs> I went to see the Annika Yee um, exhibition oh, at the yeah. Tate. Um, and obviously we all have to wear masks. And um, each week, I think, um, the scent changes. And some of the smells are like 
the plague or you know they're like and i i was talking to the curator and there were all of these questions around like if you want to put in like a negative or like a repellent smell like how repellent can you make it <laughs> like what's the threshold because actually like the plague smelled amazing to me like the one that was on when I was there I was like oh god I want this perfume <laughs> but obviously wearing the mask there was like kind of sneaking sneaking it down a bit because you can't experience the work properly and likewise any exhibition you know any artwork that involves like touch you know like there's all of these kind of added boundaries right now to how we're interfacing with the world you know on a human level as much as on a kind of you know consuming culture level and actually yeah sound and vision have really benefited because you can still listen to music you can still watch films or see each other on screen so yeah, there's a hierarchy that will probably be redressed in the future when we're free from this we will be smushing against each other <laughs> licking sweating and smelling and and feeling that we're properly bodies with noses and 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 tactile oh, wait. <laughs> so until that day until that day <laughs> well on that glorious note thank you both so much and, Thank you. Um, I look forward to staying Thank in you. touch and have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Have a lovely start to 2022 and hopefully meet you in person soon somewhere in the world. Yes, hope to see you soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much.